Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. we're continuing in our series of the most often asked questions. Some of you don't know that. We did, Jonathan did a survey back uh, when he was interning this summer and asked, and you responded, and we've been taking them in a descending order, the least, most often asked question, working ourselves down, and now we come to the second most often asked question, and it has to do uh, with the forgiveness of sin. And uh, I've entitled the message, The Joy of Forgiveness. We're going to go back to an old, old friend. You know, do you view your Bible that way and parts of your Bible? You should. They're, they ought to be like old friends to you. I view the Psalms that way. And we're going to look at Psalm 51, no stranger to us, but it is an old, old friend, one that I often read. And we're going to develop it and teach so that you will know for certain what God's wonderful and holy word has to say about your sin. We are sinners. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Let's say that. The wages of sin is death. We're going to talk about the remedy to that even this morning as we look at this. And the result in your life and mine ought to be the joy, the joy of being forgiven. It is most, most wonderful. Well, your question really was, how do we know that our sins or mistakes, was actually the word in the survey, are really forgiven? Well, there are many wonderful benefits that we enjoy as believers in Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, the Christian life is the most blessed life, more blessed than anything else. It really is. You just think of the benefits. If you know Christ the Lord is saved, if you don't, you need to today. But if you do, and most of you probably do, the benefits are just unbelievable. A lot of times Americans are enamored with dollars and cents. We add up our assets, right? Balance sheet and all that kind of thing. I'm talking not about that stuff. That stuff is gone. You know, the, we don't even use Roman money anymore. The gold of the Caesar, right? Gone. Dollars. Federal Reserve note. What's that? <laughs> I'm talking real benefits, real assets. I've listed a few of them here. Some of these include uh, understanding who we are. You know, if you're a Christian, you really know who you are in this world. If you don't, you are walking in darkness. And you believe the nonsense that you came from pond scum, you probably deserve to be in the pond. You're not. God has made us fearfully and wonderfully made. The psalmist says we lack but little of God. Now, we're not immortal. We're mortal, subject to sin and death because of Adam. But we are made in God's image. You can think and make true choices. This morning for breakfast, you said, mm, Cheerios or Wheaties, the breakfast of champions. One or the other, or nothing. Coffee, cream, sugar. You make true choices. You have a, a will that can decide. Limited it is, according to our nature, to our mind, 
You can't go and fly. Say, I want to fly. I choose to fly. Don't try it. The law of gravity will take over, and you'll squat, splat, and that'll be the end of you. And they'll wonder, what happened to that guy? You can make choices. You emote. I said last night at that crazy movie, it was so good. I'm standing there, you know, David looked at me and wondered what was wrong with me. I'm wiping the tears from my eyes. I'm just rejoicing at what God did portrayed on the screen. What's the matter with me? I'm a football player, wrestler. I'm a guy's guy. What am I, a babbling? Anyway, we'll go down that street. We have emotions. Well, yeah, and even ladies, your men have emotions. You may wonder about that at times, but they do. God does. He loves. He hates. He, he, you see? We know who we are. We, we, beyond that, and, and how wonderful that is. We, there's purpose to life. And our purpose is to love the Lord, to serve Him, and to glorify Him all the days of our life. We're His trophies. There's purpose. It's just not the madness of the job of the clock and go to bed so I can get up and work. and get work, get paid so I pay the bills. Then I go to bed and get rest. The endless cycle uh, of uh, the carousel of life, if you will. You, you really have purpose. And it's beyond that. It's great. Oh, what a benefit of being a Christian. How about having a home in heaven? This isn't our home. We talked about that last week. We talked about, the, uh, about heaven and the wonder of that and uh, the glory of that. Heaven is our home. How about having a family filled with real brothers and real sisters? Brothers from a different mother, if you will, but wonderfully saved. Uh, now, what a great thing to have your natural family also to be your spiritual family. But that doesn't always happen. I lived for many years in a home where my father was not saved, and I understood. Jesus said, I come to bring a sword, dividing a father from a son and a mother from his from daughter. And it's the, it's the possession of the gospel by some but not all of your natural family. And you feel that, and it's a pain and an ache. But how wonderful to be with God's family and his children. And we call each other brother and sister, rightfully so. Because that's what we are in Christ. Oh, to have that family. Oh, wow, it's glorious. But another wonderful benefit is having all of our sins forgiven. All of them. All of them. Washed clean in the blood of Christ. Gone, 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 gone. All my sins are gone. The old hymn used to put it that way. We would teach our children that. Gone forever. That's our sin because of our Savior, and it results in a heart that is squeaky clean because of Christ. And it doesn't matter what sin you've done. There's not all sin is the same. I realize that. It all is, is rebellion in essence of God before Him and in His world. Some is more severe and awful, and we know that. Some, some sin is crime, and it has greater degrees of punishment. Hell will have greater degrees of punishment. But all of our sin, all of it doesn't matter. There's room at the cross for you. All of it can be scrubbed clean if you're not saved. 
If you come to Christ confessing, I am a sinner, I have rebelled, I have come to understand that Christ is the very Lamb of God who died at Calvary to make the, the payment for sin the only way to heaven. And I guarantee you, based upon the authority of God's only word, it is all gone, all of that. What great news the gospel is. And then as you and I walk through life as Christians, we need not sin. We should make no provision to sin. Don't make provision for the flesh to allow it to fulfill itself. Paul says in Galatians, but we do sin. We bump into each other. We say things we shouldn't. We see things we shouldn't. We, you know what it is. As God grows us up and matures us and, and, and grows us in, in obedience, but we ought not. But it's not that we need to be saved all over again. Don't think that. Some do teach that, but the Bible never teaches that. You're saved. Your sin is forgiven. But when we sin as Christians, it interrupts the fellowship. It grieves the Holy Spirit, and we're sort of on the outs. I've said it a hundred times. I grew up in a large family, seven children, and somebody in our family was always in the doghouse. Now, it was me a lot. I was in the doghouse a lot. I was. My sisters, I'd often say, how come they're never in trouble? You know, they're just, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, yes. And my brother and I had great on this, you know. They wouldn't be out getting in trouble, this and that, and everything, and get grounded. How come they're never grounded? You know, that kind of thing. It happened occasionally, but I can hardly remember it really. But we were always getting in trouble. And we were on the outs, my brother, my younger brothers, uh, that kind of a thing. My father would go pick out a belt, and I, I thought I'd pick the narrow one out first. Whoa, you learned that one. Don't do that again. And, uh, but my father would dole discipline. I'm glad. And you know, the reality is I only got about half of what I really deserved. <laughs> Some of you look like saints, but you know it's not true. And the same thing is true with you. And that's what happens. When we disappoint or disobey our parents, there's a break in the fellowship. Your father is coming home at those, those moments struck terror in my heart because I knew my father would not back down. He would deal with it, and I needed to be dealt with. And God put me in the right family with the right man who had gone to military school and was going to deal with it. And I just bless the Lord for that now. I wasn't too thrilled at the moment. You know how that goes. But until the uh, justice was dealt with, until I came to confession and repentance, uh, uh, there was no sweet fellowship. We didn't hang around talking about the great Buffalo Bills or, 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 or other things, you know, because there was estrangement. I was still part of the family. My father didn't give me the boot out the door. You know, that's it. You're no longer a Z-man. That's it. Never did that. I was always in. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. We own the name of Christ if we're saved. We ought not sin, but when we do sin, it's a break in fellowship. And therefore, we have to find restoration of that fellowship through cleansing and through the confessing, Father, I have sinned. Please forgive me of my sin. Now we're going to read a number of verses here that teach us of that before we develop our Psalm uh, 30, uh, uh, Psalm 51. 
Look at, uh, look at Psalm 103, verses 10, 11, and 12. The psalmist writes, He, that's God, does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as, here it is, the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now let's look at the next, First John 1, 9. You should wear this section out in your Bible. Would to God that you wouldn't have to. You don't need to, but we do. I've worn mine out. Look at what John writes, the beloved, to Christians. He says, and he jumps down and joins the ones he's writing to when he says, if we, John says, me too, if we confess our sins. He's, he's saved. He's talking to Christians. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. That is a marvelous verse for Christians. And look at Psalm 130, this great penitential psalm. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? It's rhetorical. None of us could. Look at that list. Man, how'd you like to see a list of your sins? Not me. Not me. It would be forever long. God, thank you. But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. What a wonderful verse. Psalm, should be Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. Well, David, David was a great man of God. You know that. And he fell into, by his own choice, into two great sins. Now, he should have been out with his army. The Scripture said that. The king was to be with his army at times of battle. His army was out there with his generals, and he was home. It's another occasion, and it reminds us, be careful of leisure when you don't have enough uh, things to do. I think it opens us up to greater temptation. And certainly that was the case in David's life. You can check it. I have 2 Samuel uh, is the text, uh, chapters 11, 12, 13, right in that area. And there he is in the evening, and he sees Bathsheba, and she's bathing um, there, and he's looking down. He's on his roof of the palace looking down, and he sees this beautiful woman, and uh, he, uh, he called her over, he lusted after, committed adultery in his heart, and then he actually committed physical adultery. The king, the beloved, the man of God, the one who had slown, uh, who uh, slew a giant, Goliath, the one who had done so much for Israel. He's probably about 48, 50, 52 at this years of age at this point. And he commits the sin of adultery. But more than that, he attempted to cover it up, didn't he? Or like that. That's why we, we just need to say, Lord, I'm an open book. You know everything about me. I don't know how you can stand me. But it is true. I've sinned. I sin with my mouth. I sin with my heart, my eyes, my hands. I say things I shouldn't. Half, lie, half truths are all lies. You know, lust in my heart, idols of the heart, all of that. And so David tries to cover it up. And what a situation. Uriah is such a faithful warrior 
that when he calls him home, because he got word now that Bathsheba, a one-night stand, she's pregnant. So I know what he says I'll do. I'll bring, I'll bring her husband home from the, from the battlefield and let her, you know, sort of uh, uh, cohort with his wife. He hasn't seen her. And uh, then when she has a baby, then everyone, oh, that's when Uriah came home. He attempted to cover it up, didn't he? This guy was so loyal to David. I mean, it just compounds the sin and the guilt of David that when Uriah comes home, he doesn't even go in to enjoy the delights of marital life with his wife. He stays outside. He's so loyal to the cause and to his king. Wow. So what's David to do? So he, he, he writes a letter it was his own death warrant. When you approach the wall, put Uriah at the front so that certainly he'll get killed. We'll get rid of him. So he's guilty of premeditated murder one. Adultery? Murder one? How can it be? A man who's regenerate in the Old Testament sense, truly so. A man who walked with God, served God, was blessed of God. And he's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of murder one. And then he never confessed it. He never dealt with it. He ruled, if we have the time sequence right, for about one year when God said, that's enough. He waited and waited and waited, and God has his ways, doesn't he? And he sends Nathan the prophet to him. Remember that? Do you remember that story? Nathan shows up. He presents a story a story of great injustice, and uh, David, he's all in a rage that the one, the man with the one lamb that had been taken from him, that he demands judgment upon the fictitious person in Nathan's story. And Nathan, at that moment, by God's direction, turns to him. It's high drama in the Old Testament. It says in King James English, Thou art the man. Now there is God's man pointing God's word at God's king. And David knew instantly that it was from God. And that his sin was revealed. And that he was undone. This psalm that we're looking at, this old friend, a a psalm that we have visited in days gone by, uh, is uh, is the penning of uh, David's prayer of confession and repentance following that horrendous sin. You should know in the Old Testament there was no provision ever made for these sins. None. None. And so David is going to ultimately cast himself upon the mercy of God and that alone. For he knows that the wages of sin is death and that truly he deserves to die. For he is in rebellion against God and attempted to cover it up. Well, Psalm 51 is the greatest of the seven confessional or they're called penitential psalms in the book of the Psalms, it tells of this. It's instructive for us. It's instructive for me and for you as we too yearn uh, from the depths of our heart to be released from the penalty of our sin and find cleansing. Wash, scrub, clean. 
again. Oh, the joy of it. Now let me just say one more thing about this psalm. You should know that uh, Psalm 51 was a favorite of a lot of historical people. Even King Henry V, dubious guy that he was, um, he should have felt guilty, for he had, uh, had it read while he was laying on his deathbed. Uh, William Carey, the great missionary to India, he asked uh, before he died that it would be the sermon text for his funeral service, that uh, this Psalm 51 would be the last thing with his body laid there in a box that people would hear. He knew that allowed to continue, you see, sin will remove every good thing from your life and from mine. It will. It will remove it. Not only will it remove joy, but it will remove health, and it will remove wealth, and at last it will remove life itself. And so it's important for us to hear from this old friend again, Psalm 51, as we see David seeking through penitential tears, confessing his sin and finding the joy of forgiveness that we might too emulate and do the same thing in our own spiritual discipline in our life. Well, there are two necessities enabling us to be free from all our sin. For our forgiveness is our great need. For without it, you and I stand utterly condemned before God. And I'm reminded you can't remain passive in this. Not like bumps on a log floating down the yellow breaches. They remove some of those dams now. I guess it's easier. Some of you have been kayaking down that, I hear. And maybe it's easy. You don't have to do the portage, right? Or whatever. You can't be passive. You must be active in this thing. You must get engaged and do this. Your mom can't do it for you. Your husband can't. Your brother, your sister, your child. You must do this. It's called the disciplines of a spiritual life. You must seek and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin. If you are a Christian, you ought to examine your heart daily. Well, the first necessity is found in verses 1 to 9. We must confess our sins to the Lord to find pardon and cleansing. Here are the words of, of David. Let's, uh, let's read verses 1 to 9 of this uh, psalm. Uh, as it, uh, as uh, we hear the broken, confessing heart of David. Look what he writes in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You Teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness again is the idea. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. 
blot out all of my iniquity. And we'll stop there at that point. This is the first necessity. We, like David, too, must uh, engage in the confession of our sin. Now, confession is a sort of a 50-cent word. All it simply means is to agree with God. Agree with Him. You know, you'll see that in a court sometimes when someone is uh, found guilty and it, maybe it's a plea bargain. And, Janae, maybe you've seen that. Uh, the, uh, the offended party wants uh, not only a guilty plea, but they want them to verbally uh, say before the court that what they did was wrong and they ask forgiveness or apologize. Sometimes they'll say apologize in court and ask forgiveness. To extract words from the offender that what they did was wrong. Agree that what they did was wrong. That's what the word confession means. And so the 50 cents, Lord, it's true, I've sinned. And agree with God. The wages of sin is death. We must confess our sins to the Lord. Now David, in verses 1 and 2, he approaches God with this cry for forgiveness. He utters a fierce, even desperate cry, clinging to God's mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Mercy. Mercy is the way that sinners can approach God, not by His justice. You cannot approach holy God based on His justice. You can't. Justice is for fairness. Justice means give me what I deserve. It's rightfully mine. Don't do that. You and I would be out of here in an instant. You want justice? You got it. We'd be in hell right now. Never. We never plead, give me, uh, give me based on justice. You know, we never also do say based on your power. You're almighty, El Shaddai God, based on your power. For, never. It's not based on that. It's not based on God's holiness. That utterly condemns us. And we feel, woe unto me, I'm undone like Isaiah, who saw the Lord in Isaiah 6. It is mercy and mercy alone, for sinners deserve death, separated from God forever. Well, where do we learn that God is merciful? How do we know that? We look at creation, and we see a number of things about God. He's a God of power and might and constancy. He's faithful, the sunrise, sunset, seasonal changes, and all of that. Uh, We see His power, His Godhead, His presence, these things, but not His mercy where, where, where did we learn that God is merciful? How do we know that? Well, we don't know it unless God would tell us. And in a most wonderful text, one that you ought to be familiar with, he does just that in Exodus uh, chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. Take your Bible. I want to just show you that wonderful passage. The context simply is Moses was up on Sinai, He came down, you know the story of the golden calf, God's judgment, Moses deals with it, uh, and and all that. And this follows that in in, in Exodus chapter 33. And look at this account. For Moses really wants to know God. And God at this moment, following the horrendous, idolatrous sin of his people, is going to present his name, means who he is, his character, 
And he is going to announce to sinners that he's merciful. Merciful. In other words, mercy means he doesn't give us what we deserve. He holds it back and rather treats us kindly. Look at the account in Exodus 33, 12. And Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but uh, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Moses says, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Look at verse 18 now. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. That's who the Lord is. He's going to reveal who he is in the context of great sin that the people have just done. And the Lord in your presence, and he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, This is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. We sing that, don't we? and cover you with my hand. Until I have passed by, then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Well, the Lord reveals himself to, to, uh, to Moses following the horrendous sin of the people of Israel, whom God was going to wipe out until Moses interceded and prayed. And Moses says, I want to know you. And God reveals himself to be a merciful God. You see, you can look at the sunset forever and you'll never know of God's mercy. God has to reveal it. We see it, don't we, ultimately and finally in the revelation of Jesus. The kindness of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord. Oh, incredible. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and sinners need to know this. One man writes, after Israel's national disaster, that of the golden calf, according to Exodus 33, the very essence of God is mercy. And the most important thing that we as sinners can ever know about God is that He's merciful. Not that He's all-wise, not that He's all-knowing, not that He's just, or that He's sovereign, sovereign, but that He's merciful. And David knew that. And so, number two, now, having a profound awareness of his sin, we know that because look at the three words he uses for it in verses 1 and 2. The first word he uses is the word transgression. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great comfort. Blot out my, word number one, transgression. The next line, iniquity. The next line, sin. He uses three words, piles them one upon the other, confessing his newfound awareness of his sin. Now, transgression refers to the crossing of a known boundary of God's moral law. It's trespassing. It's transgressing God's moral law. God has established his law. And when you and I choose to willfully say, we don't say it, but Lord, I don't care what your word says. I don't care what the moral law is. I'm going to do it anyway. That is a transgression. Whether we know the chapter and verse or whether it's written in our heart, God has given it written in our heart. Men and women know right and wrong intuitively. We have that moral likeness to God, and when we go against that, God has given us a conscience, which is like a thermostat. It goes off. Something's not right. Don't do it. Don't do it. Your dog never had that. He steals a bone from a little doggy friend. He never has a bad conscience. Your cat, your parakeet, your little African frog. I don't know what you have. Snakes, cobra snakes. Some people have all sorts of things. Pets. God's wonderful foliage of life. And we're glad for them. But they're not made in God's image like you are. We have a conscience and we're aware of it. And transgression means to to cross the barrier of God's law. One day Julius Caesar, uh, the Caesar of Rome, as uh, long as uh, a general remained north of the Rubicon River. Some of you know your history better, better than others. The generals in those days could not bring their armies into the city of Rome. There was Roman law that uh, uh, forbade it. In that day, you see, you bring a, a, a general, bring his army in, it would be insurrection. He'd be like taking over. And therefore, instantly, uh, if he crossed the Rubicon with his army, the peaceful terms of the Roman Senate would be broken and civil war would break out. Well, one day, Julius Caesar did just that. He was crossing the Rubicon with his army, and he yelled out, Iacta alia est, meaning the die is cast. And civil war broke out in Rome. And some of you know that even better than others. Well, this is what we have done. This is what you and I have done with God when we transgress his moral law. We cross the boundary and we become uh, at enmity or at war with him. David said, I've transgressed your law, blotted out my iniquity. Second, it refers to the perversion or to to the depravity of our natures. Uh, One man writes, it's uh, the effect of sin in our life. It, It twists us. We'll use that expression when we see someone odd or different. We'll say, That guy's twisted. You know what I mean? Perversion has a way of twisting the brain. I've seen it through the years. It's a a sad thing when men and women uh, become less than what God desired them to be because the effect of sin in the brain and the, the twisting where wrong becomes right and right becomes wrong. Twisted, we say. Perversion. It's the effect of sin in our life. And finally, he uses the word sin. 
probably similar to the New Testament word harmatia. Uh, it's, a, it's a falling short of God's uh, high mark of perfection, His holiness. And we have certainly done that. David, you'll notice in verses 3, 4, 5, and 9, I have it on your sheet, all these words appear later in this psalm, and David takes full responsibility for them. And when you and I are going to seek the Lord in confession of our sin, I'm reminded there cannot be any blame shifting going on. We cannot be like Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam, what did you do? The woman you gave me. You're kind of blaming God and the serpent, you know. Then to the woman, well, the serpent, you know, blame shifting. We're good at that, aren't we? We're good at that. We think of all kinds of excuses. There can't be any of that. Lord, I did it. I have sinned. I've sinned in my heart. I've sinned with my mouth. And boy, don't we sin with our mouth a lot, don't we? We sin with our minds, our mouths, our hands, and our feet. Wow. I've sinned. I've fallen short. I have done it. And in, in verses 3, 4, 5, and 9, look at all the personal pronouns. My transgression, my sin, I sinned. I was sinful, verse 5, then verse 9, my sins, my no blame shifting. He went for a year unconfessed, but now it's, he's bended knee before the Lord, seeking confession and cleansing. And you know what? He's going to find it. And it's true in your life, and it's true in mine. And when we do, the fruit of joy and blessedness comes when our hearts are scrubbed clean by the blood of Christ in salvation, and then after that, as we walk the life as a Christian. In verses 3 to 6, David confesses his sin to the Lord by making several statements about it. Number one, we too, like David, must be aware of our sin. I know that my transgression and my sin is always before me. Most of our problem begins here. We, we either grade ourselves on a curve, and I was glad in math when they always did that, right? Take a trigonometry exam, and are you going to grade this on a curve? Oh, I hope so. And then you get mad at the curve breaker, right? The class bet who figured it all out, spent all night studying, whatever, and we kind of were hoping a 50 would be a B, you know? <laughs> That's our problem. We sit around looking at each other and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. Well, that guy's really bad, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself here. Yeah. That's the problem. We're all in the sewer looking at each other. That's the problem, and, and that really is. We kid ourselves. We kid ourselves. That's where most of our, we do not confess sins because we don't recognize that what we do is sin and, and, and how utterly sin is. It's utterly deceitful. It is. David uh, was very much aware of his sin in verses uh, 3 and 4. The companion psalm to this, I'll only turn you once, so look at 32. I always should think of Psalm 32 and 51, they go hand in hand. Because during that year time when David was silent and did not confess his sin until he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he paid a price. He paid a price. And you and I pay a price when we either don't face our sin or we don't deal with our sin in confession. Look what David in his own testimony writes about uh, in Psalm 32, 3, when I kept silent, meaning he didn't confess. He said, my bones wasted away. There was a physical phenomena resulted. I ached. 
There was groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin and didn't cover it up anymore. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. There's a price to pay. Sleepless nights. You know, sleep is a sweet gift, but when we, we try and drown our conscience out, rather than get on our knees on the side of our bed and cry out to God for cleansing, we won't sleep as well. And thank God for that. You want to keep your conscience in good working order. Don't ever want it to be calloused over or severed. That's not a good situation. You want that alarm system to go off. Something's not right here. So that when you're going through McDonald's and they give you the wrong chains, you don't say, he's stupid and today's my good day. I get an extra two bucks. I hope the alarm goes off in your heart so that you can't even think but to do the right thing. Hand it back and say, I think you might want to recount that change. You gave me too much. Whenever it is, with our mouths, our actions, our minds, that our consciences are working, and when they don't, you're going to pay a price. Ulcers, lack of sleep, arthritis. You know, I've been reading more and more. Faithy's had a little bit of arthritis in her fingers and her toe, and, and just reading about how the things that go on immaterial in our, in our heart affect our bodies, age us, wrinkles, arthritis, all kinds of things, heart disease, when it's not right with our soul. Listen, you're not your body. You're the soul that dwells within your body, but your soul affects your body. Why be aged before your time? You know, I know aging is sort of a genetic thing, and uh, some age more than others, but, you know, if you and I live in unconfessing, we're going to age even more. We will. David had that problem. Before I, it was, before I confessed, I was achy and hurty and didn't sleep, and I was in trouble physically. Wow. Look at number two, under B. We too, as Dave, must realize that our sin is ultimately and always against the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned. It's rebellion. We may wrong others. We may offend others. But sin is only and ultimately against God. That's what the point David came to in 2 Samuel 12, 13. He came to this point, I have sinned against the Lord. That was the beginning of his renewal, cleansing and washing. The wages of sin is death. Proverbs 28, 13. Write that down in your margin. 28, 13 of Proverbs Uh, uh, Solomon wrote, He who covers his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Boy, that really says it. You can write that right over Psalm 51. Mercy is to be found through confession. Well, three, we too must recognize that our sin springs from our evil bent within us. In verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, do not think that he's blaming his mother here for his sin. But on your sheet I have, what he is saying is, there's never been a moment when I was not a sinner. I was born a sinner. I have a human nature that I've received from my mother and my father, and it's a tainted human nature with sin. 
and that you and I are pervasively depraved, sinful. It affects our mind, it affects our will, it affects our emotions. And that's who we are. And God is in the business of cleansing us and saving us and using us and filling our heart and flooding our soul with joy. That's what it's about. Well, in verse 6, he knows that God desires purity within. Surely, Lord, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Well, see, we see that David's appeal for cleansing is based solely on the need for a blood, for the blood of the innocent. The blood of the innocent, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. What in the world does he mean? Cleanse me with hyssop. What is that? Well, some of you know. Hyssop is, was a little, little uh, plant that often would grow. It would come between the cracks of the stone of a wall. And it was of such that you could clip it off and its uh, branches, you could use it like a brush. The hyssop brush kind of a thing. Now, when we paint a house or you paint your family room, you go down to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy a nice paintbrush and use. Well, they, they didn't have that. Sometimes they use horse's hair maybe or something like that, but hyssop, hyssop. And so, in fact, uh, this is what was used uh, in, the, uh, in the shedding of blood, in the applying of blood all the way through the Old Testament. Cleanse me with hyssop is the brush that was used to dip into the blood of the animal that was killed as a sin substitute. We find the bloody trail beginning in Genesis 3. You know, if you know anything about West Point, they talk about the long gray line of all the West Point cadets that have been there for hundreds of years and gone through the academy. If you know something about West Point, you know something about that if you're in the Army. There's, if you know something about your Bible, there's the long scarlet red thread that runs cover to cover of your book. It began in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned. Now what was God to do? He said, in the day that you sin and the day you eat, you will die indeed. And God prescribed the answer. He was kind to them. He was merciful. He didn't kill them at that instant. He provided a substitute. Remember, they clothed themselves with figs, leaves, and it wasn't to be, was it? It wasn't by man's endeavors that he would be made right before God. It required the death of an innocent animal, for God clothed them with the coverings of an animal that died because of their sin. We see the blood there in Passover when we get to Exodus. There in Exodus, the Passover, the 10th plague. And uh, those that were to be in the house, how were they to be protected? Well, a lamb, an innocent lamb, without spot or blemish. Innocent was to be slain. It's not fair, you say. It's not right. But it's the blood of that lamb that was put into the bowl, and it was the hyssop bush that they were to take, and over the lintel and the doorframe, when the death angel passed over all within that house, were protected, covered by the blood of the death of the innocent substitute 
From cover to cover, this thread runs. And it points ultimately and finally uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the innocent one. He didn't deserve to die. The only one that never deserved to die laid down his life. The love of God, the plan of the ages, the purpose of Calvary. He died in your place and in mine. He shed his blood for you and for me that we might find cleansing and washing and forgiveness. But it's not automatic. You must receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. You do that in a simple prayer of faith. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. I have broken your moral commandments, your laws, and transgressed. Thank you for sending the Lamb of God to die in my place. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Don't even need to pray it. If you just in your heart acknowledge that, you can be saved even today. David writes here, and number one, he prays, cleanse me with hyssop. The word cleanse means to purge. Literally, it means descend me. Wash me and be, he says, uh, that uh, the stains remain no more. Look at Isaiah 118. It was nothing new. In Isaiah 118, we discover, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That's what God is up to in providing the blood of the substitute. Blot out, David goes on to say, is the removing of the indictment from a page. That day they didn't have the paper mills like we have. I worked at International Paper Mill when I was in college and came to understand how we make high-quality paper. And in that day, it was the papyrus that they would use. And I've seen how they make how they made papyrus sheets, spread them out, and 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 I've seen the sheets. And so we have <clears throat> the school children in those days would write on them with a little cuneiform uh, pen. And the sort of the waxy surface would be uh, uh, what they would write in. You could read it, and they'd do their math or their grocery lists or whatever. And and because paper was scarce, not like today, give me another ream, you know, they would blot it out. They'd smudge it out and then turn it this way and use it again. Better than whiteout. Some of you don't even know what that is. My kids were asking, what's whiteout? <laughs> smudge out, blot out, David saying. It's like there's this list with all of his sin on it. And he's saying, smudge it out, blot it out. So it's not there, the record of sin of my life. Oh, remove it from the page of my life. Well, hyssop, I said, was a small plant used like a brush to sprinkle the blood. David is therefore asking, cleanse me by the blood. Forgive me. Consider me as cleansed on the basis of the innocent victim, the animal that has died. Well, this is how we come to know God, too. We need forgiveness badly. But Hebrews tells us in 9.22, and our last reference, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, 
And here it is. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or forgiveness of sins. That's the teaching of our Bible, pure and simple. It is only on the shed blood of Jesus that we may find God's mercy and forgiveness. Confessing our sin to the Lord brings us cleansing. But and just before we end, the second necessity, that's not enough, is it? Because even when we find cleansing, we're going to, because of our sin bent, don't need to, but we tend to find the same pothole in life again. And we sin again and again and again. And so David prays in verse 10 and following. Look what he writes in Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, or take the Holy Spirit from me. And here's the theme of our sermon today. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David realized, and as we, that we must have a renewed heart so that we will not continue in sin forward, but rather walk in purity. David realized that forgiveness was not enough. He needed a new heart so as not to repeat his sin. Create in me a pure heart. That's a kind of a special word in Hebrew. It's bara. Uh, we find it in Genesis 1. It's, uh, it's a word that tells us of something only God can do. You can't self-reform. You can't. Benjamin Franklin's uh, thought there on self-improvement, not bad in its place, but will never change your heart. We need a new heart. In Barah is used, create, in Genesis 1, the three pivotal points. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created, there's the word, the heavens and the earth, the creation of all matter. And second, the creation of animal life in verse 21 of Genesis 1. And finally, in the creation of man, and God said, let us make man in our image. That's Genesis 1.27. God alone can do this. And so Psalm 51 tells us the creation of this new heart that David is praying for is something that only, only God can do. Only he can do it. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, behold... All things is new. The reality is, is that once you come to Christ and walk with Christ, some of the old sins that you and I used to really love, we can't love it anymore like we once did. You know that? There's a huge change. It takes place because, thank God, He's given us a new bend, a new disposition, a new nature, or we say a new heart. A steadfast spirit as a result. And finally, B, David prays for the restoration of joy. He had lost it. What a horrible year. How do you like to be near him that year? He'd probably be miserable. What's wrong with him? You know, walking around, kicking the dog, shouting at the kids, yelling at his wife. What, what, what's wrong with him? He had no joy in his life. Maybe that's your situation. Maybe the reality is, is that you have a huge sin list that you're not, you're not, up, you're not current with. If it's not a day-to-day examination, it's probably pretty long. Needs to be. 
Well, and David prayed for restoration of joy. Note this. It was not to be saved again, for he never became unsaved. But that he might experience the joy and the blessing of having a clean heart again. Oh, it's so great. I'm telling you. It's so great to get off your knees and to realize that God has cleansed your heart as a believer again. It's so great. It's so humbling. And you know, we need that. But He cleanses us. And we can love others freely. And the love of God can flow through us freely to others. And we can be a blessing. But when we plug plug the dam up and our hearts aren't where they ought to be, not good. Not good. And David knew that. Well, lessons for our life. What can we say? Number one. Jesus died as the innocent sin substitute on Calvary's cross. You must receive him as your Savior from sin. I'm not saying be a member of a church, not to be baptized, not to give money, not to show up and worship. All these are good things in their place. Well, all these, you can do all those and be lost forever. You must invite him to be your Lord and Savior. Come unto me, Jesus said. Will you come? Some of you are not saved. You need to come today. Come. You must receive him as your Savior and have your sin forgiven. Number two, second lesson. When forgiven, your sin is gone. Let it go. Let it go. When in contrition you come and you pour your out heart out to the Lord and and you confess it and turn from it, it's gone. Don't carry it around. Paul was a murderer. David was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. You go like, well, you don't know me, and I'm not sure God for... Let it go. God's Word said it. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's so. As far as the east is from the west. Listen, on the globe, you can go north, and you keep going up north, and soon you're going south. But if you go east, you keep going east, and you're never going west. Now, don't tell me how that works, but I know it does work. And isn't it interesting, those are the words that the Spirit of God gave the psalmist. As far as the east is from the west is your sin. Let it go, all of it. We're all spiritual beggars, just pointing out where the food is. All right, some of you struggle with that. I failed. Well, join the club. I'm just a wretched man. Well, so are all of us. But written over us, if you're in Christ, is forgiven. And let it go. And the joy of Christ will flood your heart and live for Him. Number three, if you are saved, God can, has given you a new heart. You can't enjoy sin like you once did. Maybe you sinned up to your tonsils. Man, you were into it. <laughs> And you got saved. You, and that, let's say you choose to fall into that. You can't enjoy it because there's a new bent, a new nature. It's the Spirit of God in you. 
Wow, praise God for that. Number four, keep your sin list short. If you have learned nothing else here today, dear Christian, keep it short. Every day I, I say, Lord, examine my heart. Shine the spotlight on. It's a miserable business. I like to pray for you. I like to pray for my kids, my wife. I cover them with prayer daily, my granddaughter, right? I pray for my country, my president. I pray for the work of the Lord around the world, missions. The most miserable part of my prayer time, can I tell you? So when I sort of go into the basement of my heart, I have to turn the spotlight on, see the cockroaches running around. It's a miserable business. But it's so needful. It's so needful. And it's needful in your life, dear Christian. If it's needful in mine, join the crowd Let's keep our sinless short. If you remember nothing else, Psalm 51, how do I know my sins are forgiven? The Word of God said so, and it's so. Keep your sin list short. Daily confess. Number five and last. Oh, the joy of a clean heart. Amen. Not sinless. Not sinless, but forgiven. Praise the Lord. Isn't that good news? That is good news. That's the kind of news I can live with. I know how the Lord can stand me. I know it's only through His Son that He sees us. Forgiven. Finally and forever. The wages of sin is death. Gone, 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 gone. All my sin is gone, the joy of forgiveness. 